Hello everyone. I am so grateful that I am concluding religion and sex today. Because after this, I said everything I needed to say about religion and sex. This is the day we've all been waiting for. This is the final curtain call. This is the grand finale. This is game seven of the NBA Finals. This game seven of the World Series. This is the Super Bowl. Uh, fourth quarter, last five minutes. So I want to talk about how I feel about Jesus. I want to start basic and then get all the way complex, complicated. This is NPRnews.org. Reza Aslan calls Jesus the most interesting person who ever lived. September 3rd, 2013, 6.15 p.m. The Jesus of the New Testament is a familiar figure to anyone raised in the Christian faith. But the Jesus of history is different from that figure of faith. According to author and religious scholar Reza Aslan, the historical Jesus was very likely illiterate, uneducated, as were 98% of his fellow Jews. Poor, extremely poor. In fact, if we take the Bible at its word that Jesus was a woodworker, a builder, then that would make Jesus probably at the second lowest rung of the social hierarchy in his time, just above the in- indigent the beggar and the slave. He was from Galilee. Galilee was considered backwards. Galilee was considered backwoods. It was considered the way many Americans would think of, say, Appalachia or the Deep South. The Galileans were referred to derisively as people of the land. It was a term that suggested they were uncouth, uneducated, poor, people who are subsistence farmers. He lived in a village called Nazareth. His village was so small, so inconsequential that his name does not appear on any map or document before the end of the first century. Now I want to pause at that point because there has been research done by many people who are independent researchers or research in academia. And, and, it, and it has been said that places that, at least one place in the Bible may not have existed. That makes me ask questions about the other places not exist in the Bible that's been said to exist that the Bible says these places did exist. 
Another way of saying it, so now bad got confused. When the Bible talks about location, is it possible that the locations that the Bible says did exist does not exist? Could it be more than one location that that could be the case? Hmm. Because Jesus being from Nazareth, it should appear on all maps and documents, regardless of centuries, but because it didn't, that makes me think the Bible is much more allegorical, metaphysical, metaphorical, metaphorical and more figurative than I thought it was. And it says, this is a village that probably housed maybe Rogers families at most. Didn't have any roads, didn't have any public baths, didn't have a synagogue or a school. But it said that Jesus taught in taught in synagogues because I'm reading the Bible right now happening my tangible hands I say tangible hands meaning I have the physical copy in my hand now if it didn't have a synagogue or a school it says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues. So faith and history may not always confirm one another because this person is a scholar. And if the Bible says that in which all the towns villages and that synagogues and saying it doesn't have a synagogue, that lets me know that with scripture in order to paint a narrative, a narrative doesn't have to be historically correct according to the religious narrative communicated, which I think is problematic because if you're, if you're going to tell people about a person who was said to exist, in this case Jesus, everything you say about Jesus has to be historically correct. If not, that's a problem. That that could that 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 that's deception, and that's what makes me think about how if it didn't have a school, 
Then where did Jesus get his education from? Because the Bible says he is literate because wrote on the ground. Or have not you read? He would make those statements to the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees were trying to trap him, when it comes to the woman being caught in adultery, he wrote. But in that case, again, faith narrative and historical narrative clash. One's lying and the other's telling the truth. Because history confirmed history never lies. But if you have faith that says things and you have scholars that keep debunking what faith says in the Bible, for example, uh, Adam and Eve has been debunked. Noah's Ark has been debunked. And uh, the Son of God, apparently angels, mating with him that's been debunked and the red sea thing there's no overwhelming evidence for it even scientists can't say this absolutely happened see that lets me know that embellishments and untruths may occur in the fake narrative. Exaggerations and inaccuracies, unreliability, and undependability may happen in the fake narrative. Wow. And it makes me wonder if Jesus, biblical Jesus said to be a, a literate person then why not have all the other people be literate people why keep all the literacy subjects and you think maybe Jesus could have been more educated when it comes to what he heard and maybe not super necessarily with the reading and the writing. Because some people may not read or write, but when they hear certain things, they know that it's a lie. They know that it's folly. So that could be the case of Jesus. Maybe Jesus was more of a audio learner. Maybe he could hear something and have the discernment to go that's true and that's an untrue I don't know because you could be very discerning and very wise and not read and write that I would say a lot of my ancestors who were forced to be enslaved were those type of people just because you may not read or write doesn't mean that you're not educated in terms of you have this inner voice of reason 
that when people talk, you go, that's wisdom or that senselessness. So maybe he was more audio educated, even though they didn't have any microphones and Bluetooth back then. There was no auto-tune back then. There was no mixers back then. There was no radio, music equipment, or DJ equipment back then. Um, pious, poor, illiterate, marginal outcast, someone that the authorities of the time would better regard all, who regards nothing more than a nuisance and a troublemaker. And I still have questions. It didn't have any public baths. Is that why his feet washing could have been so attention grabbing? Did Jesus snap his fingers and just bathe? Or did somebody bathe him and just bathe himself? Doesn't say in the camera. Yet, despite all this, the power of his charisma, the power of his teachings, they to gather movement to himself, movement of people like him that have seen as so threatening to the political and religious powers of the day that he's ultimately arrested, tortured, and executed as a state criminal. So when Jesus was 12, Was that story about Jesus having teachers and they were just having conversation with them because he was able to outsmart them and outwisdom outwise them if you want to say it that way so was Jesus more into I may not be literate the way I think I am or the way she could think I am or I can just really show that I talk to God and that God is all my education so when Jesus was 12 was God all his education and that's why he could just freely disprove religious people wrong whatever they were saying as a 12 year old and as an adult I have questions was he illiterate the rest of his life, or was he one of those people that was literate that that he figured it out anyway, or was he illiterate the rest of his life? It's all right. I don't know. That really is quite remarkable, as I said Tuesday on the Daily Circuit. People always ask me why I'm interested in Jesus. It sounds, how could you not be interested in the person I just described? It sounds like the most interesting person I've ever lived. Aslan's new book is Salad, Life, and Times Jesus of Nazareth. The book got access to a from an interview he did recently with Fox News.com anchor Lauren Green. 
an interview which went viral on the web, Korean asked, hey, I just learned why a Muslim would write about Jesus. Aslan interprets the book as the Jews being learned to Hebrew by Palestine as a Roman occupation. In that light, for example, the Beatitudes in that new abstract as the principles of remarkable statements about the reverse of the social order. Blessed are the poor fish on the to earth, blessed are the meat, blessed are the hungry, so they shall be fed, etc. We always forget the radical nature of those statements. Frankly, we always forget the second part of the Beatitudes. I often refer to as the woes where Jesus says, and woe to the rich for they shall be made poor, and woe to the fed for they shall be made hungry. And what Jesus is describing is not some utopian fantasy that will occur at the end of time. What he's talking about is the reverse of the social order as they knew it. The first will be last, last will be first, the rich will be made poor, the poor will be made rich, the hungry will be fed, the fed will be made hungry. It doesn't take a genius to figure out A, how appealing that message would be to the poor and the hungry, B, how threatening and radical that message would be to the powerful, the wealthy, and the well fed. He told Carrie Miller that the miraculous elements of the Jesus story, for example, the virgin birth and the resurrection, are things that are beyond the realm of the historian, they are by definition a historical event. I can't as the historian comment on the resurrection because it falls outside of history. Our faith is history and conflict. Aslan's is the distinction between historians and believers. This is the most important thing to understand about the division between history and faith. Faith is about what is possible. Is it possible that Jesus thought of himself as God incarnate? Is it possible that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, it's possible. Is it likely? No, it's not. And the job of the historian is to say what is likely, not what is possible. But a person of faith can read a circle kind of Jesus about what is likely and still stay firm in their own faith of what is possible. I don't think those are necessarily conflicting things that so many people seem to. Aslan says the best known fact about Jesus that he was crucified of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate tells the fundamental truth about him. At the time of his death, he was seen as a political subversive. Crucifixion, as it says, is reserved for enemies of the state. And he suggests that some of the other elements to Jesus' story are not the facts we may think they are. For example, Pilate was a harsh, ruthless ruler, not the conscious, stricken bureaucrat who tried to find a way out of crucifying an innocent man. In the journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, Aslan says, was invented to make the story of Jesus conform to prophecies about the Messiah, he writes, Luke suggested that the entire Roman economy would, peri would periodically be placed on hold as every Roman subject was forced to uproot himself and his entire family or to travel great distances to the place of his father's birth. And then wait there patiently, perhaps for months, for an, for an official to take stock of his family and his possessions, which in case he would have left behind this place of residence, is in a word preposterous. What's more, he says, Luke's readers would not have expected the story to be strictly factual. Most people in the world of that day, he writes, did not make a sharp distinction between myth and reality. Wow. It seems to me that faith and history do 
can should be necessarily conflicting things. Again, I say this. It seems to me that faith and history do tend to be necessarily conflicting things. It seems like faith and history are in conflict. I think they are. I know they are because if you have history confirmed, no faith is needed. If you have history, there's no need for faith, right? If I have evidence on my side, do I need to hold in what is clearly there? Do I need to hope in who is clearly there? No. Without history, without history, can you truly have faith? I would say no. If you have history, there's no need for faith. If I have evidence, I don't need to hope. As evidence, I don't need to trust either. Wow. All I can say is that Jesus is history and the Christ is faith. Have been at uh, seem to be at odds with each other. It's like they're at, I think they're at odds with each other. I also so very important for me to also talk more about getting to these quick five points of an article talks about how to live a meaningful life without religion by Catherine Osmet, September 2nd, 2016, 1043, EST, Boston, Massachusetts. One, this is how I would work. You don't have to practice a religion to raise good kids. Religiosity, per se, is no indicator of a child's moral development. Research shows that what influences children's morality more than anything else is their parents' sensitivity to the feelings of others and to injustice. Even one-year-old children with such parents demonstrated a greater sense of right and wrong 
laboratory-based tests. Our children are watching our every move, which means parents have more power to replace bygone uh, Sunday sermons with our own secular values than we realize. The truth is, you don't have to believe in God to be a decent human being. There are decent human beings who don't believe in God. And there are decent human beings who question the existence of God. And they may be called agnostics. Number two, experiencing awe makes us kinder. The experience of awe comes when we feel small in the face of some larger system. The grandeur of nature, stunning work of art, the cycle of life. We're overcome by awe, time seems to slow down. It allows feelings of empathy and charity to increase. Notice what happens when you spend time in nature as a family. Sometimes experiences of all long described in religious terms are human experiences available to us all. And you can experience all profoundly describing it in secular terms if you would like. Three rituals give meaning. Rituals bind us together, help us mark time and calling us to be our best selves. Just because we leave religion doesn't mean we have to leave rituals. One family I met holds a regular Sunday morning meditation discussion sharing rituals to strengthen family bonds and reinforce a strong moral compass defined by values such as fairness and justice. A nature-based coming of age program out west called on teenagers to reflect on the unique gifts they teach. They each will give the world. For some solstice parties, some plant midnight mass and baby welcoming ceremonies, standing for baptisms, or we all need to belong. Belonging matters. Perhaps more than most of us realize. Scientists have shown that a sense of belonging or lack of registers in our bodies on on a molecular level, affecting our physical and mental health and our well-being, sense of meaning, and overall life satisfaction are influenced not by how many connections we have, but how deep those connections are. For those who missed the fellowship once found the peace, Sacro Humanist Community Sunday Assembly Atheist Meeting Atheist meetups are sprouting up across the country in Boston. The Humanist Hub even has a new secular Sunday school for kids of all ages. Mmm, nice. Five. Volunteering gives us a sense of purpose. Studies show that the religious are more charitable than non-religious natures when it comes to their own religious organizations. Those groups are, are onto something. Volunteering just one day a month gives people a greater sense of purpose and helps them feel more connected. 
Many non-rich people have met buying meaning by participating in meal packing events, park cleanups, and blood drives. Now, in individualistic culture, our kids need training wheels to learn the importance of giving. So find a family-friendly event and bring them with you. Three years after I started my book, my only regret is that I didn't learn the name of the father who asked that important question. If I could meet him today, I would tell him what the statistics can't capture. The millions of non-religious Americans are afraid of meaningful rituals, finding a greater sense of purpose, and coming together in, in, in their communities. The nuns, it turns out, are all right. N-O-N-E-S. So, a question would be, what is secular humanism to you? Secular humanism is a comprehensive non-religious life stance incorporating a naturalistic philosophy, a cosmic outlook rooted in science, a consequentialist ethical system. Let's, let's examine these items one by one. A comprehensive non-religious life stance, secular humanism, it's comprehensive, touching every aspect of life, including issues of values, meaning, and identity. Thus, it is broader than atheism, which concerns only the non-existence of God and the supernatural. Important as that may be, there's a lot more to life than secular humanism addresses it. Secular humanism is non-religious, balancing, um, no absolute certainty in a realm or being that are said to transcend ordinary experience. Secular humanism is a life stance on what Council for Secular Humanism founder Paul Kurtz has termed a you a body of principles suitable for orienting a complete human life. A secular lifestyle, secular humanism, incorporates the enlightenment principle of individualism, which celebrates emancipating the individual from um, traditional controls by family, church, and state, increasingly empowering each of us to set the terms of our own lives. Again, in another way of saying it, secular humanism is non religious, spousing no belief in a realm of beings and magic that transcend ordinary experience. In naturalistic philosophy, secular humanism is philosophically naturalistic. It holds that nature, the world, of everyday physical experience is all there is, that reliable 
knowledge is best obtained when we query knowledge using the scientific method. Naturalism asserts that supernatural entities like God uh, Hmm, the best way for me to put it, because I like to put things in my own Naturalism asserts that supernatural entities like God, like God's existence is a question mark, and warns us that knowledge gained without appeal to the natural world and without impartial review by multiple observers is unreliable. Secular pertaining to the world or things not spiritual or sacred. Human is any system of thought or action concerned with the interests or ideals of people. The intellectual culture movement characterized by emphasis on human interests rather than religious conviction. A cosmic outlook within science. Secular humanism provides a cosmic outlook, a worldview in the broadest sense, grounding our lives in the context of our universe and aligned with methods demonstrated by science. Secular humanists see themselves, ourselves, in this case, I'm talking about me here too, as beings who arose through evolution, possessing unique attributes of self-awareness and more agency. Now, when it comes to intended or unintended beings, in terms of whether we were put here on purpose or not, um, I would say that I see myself as designed because I'm here and I was made to appear a certain way and I see myself as intended because of my purpose on earth. So, in terms of intention and design in a religious sense, I don't subscribe to that. I subscribe to I'm designed and intended through a secular sense of my being here, me looking the way I look. It's not about catering to. a certain demographic religious people I don't cater to them the most I cater to people who are the, the misfits of society the most people like myself A consequentialist ethical system. Second humanists hold that ethics is consequential to be judged by results. 
Um, this is in contrast to so-called command ethics, which right or wrong, black or white thinking in this case, or defined in advance attributed to divine authority. Humans manifesto too declared next to including that God will save us from this save ourselves. For me, that means that um, we can't be preserved without us as human beings putting the work in. Second, we want to seek to develop and improve our ethical principles by examining the results we yield in the lives of real people. So, I would say for me that I am open to the existence of a realm and I am open to the existence of things that transcend on our experience. What does that mean? It means that there may be more to life than what I truly understand. There may be more to life than what is known. Um, there are things about life that even science doesn't have all the answers because science never claims to have all the answers. There, there are things about life that occur and those blanks will never be filled. Um, there are things about life about life that are unanswered questions. So when I say open, I'm saying that that mysteries Don't make me um, doesn't make me uncomfortable. Mysteries don't make me uncomfortable. When I say mystery, I say what is above my cognitive comprehension. That means it could be true, it could not be true, it may be true, may not be true. Do I know? I let the mystery be. I let the mystery of supernaturalism be. I let the mystery of miracles just be. 
meaning it's not a it's not a yes or no in my life because some things are so above my cognitive comprehension that I can't even answer the question. I just say I don't know and I'm seeking the answers. So it said that naturalism asserts that supernatural entities like God do not exist. I say that um, that my naturalism is an attempt to try my best to understand as best as I can the concept of God. I would never say once to the sense that God does not exist. I would never say with unsolicited certainty that any deity does not exist. I would never say with unsolicited certainty that no Christ figure exists, I would say that if there's a God, then that God would be much more loving than the biblical presentation says it is. You know, I, um, I'm not opposed to the concept of anyone and anything loving. What I am opposed to is a discriminatory deity. a callous Christ figure. Because what I see in the Bible I see human rights abuses that concern me. That are attributed to God or Jesus. For example, give your father the devil. Jesus a Jew, he can easily be called an anti-Semite. Genocide in the Old Testament. Obviously, that is a crime against humanity. I even call that a war cry. So, I I am open to all facts and evidence truth and wisdom and clarity like I've been saying. However, when they present these otherworldly characters in such ways that causes human rights champion 
to be greatly alarmed. When it says no God will save us, we must save ourselves. I would say more of what that means to me so people can understand how what how it is what I think on that. I would say even in in the world of religion, from what I've seen, there's more praying than working. If it's true that a God will save us, I would say it's because of the work we put in. But if we don't put any work in, we don't have the right to say that God will save us. So, for me, I've always felt that if there is a loving deity, I want to know that loving deity. In order to understand it as best as I am able to. There's a loving Christ figure. I want to best understand it as I'm, as best as I am able to. And to understand it means that hopefully, scientifically, soon, if a loving deity, a loving Christ figure is around that there's a lot more about life that can be properly understood so we can uh, have a better sense of human ethicalness and how we should treat each other and self. Let's say Jesus is real. I would reject conservative theology. Let's say God is real. I wouldn't believe in religion. Some people would say expand a little more. Okay. Let's say everything about the Bible is real and all of the statements about Jesus I reject conservative theology I say all the statements about God and the Bible are real I don't believe in religion unless they science fully vouch for God and Jesus, I would still say I accept Jesus and reject conservative theology. I would say I believe in God, not religion. Um, But because science 
doesn't really vouch for both. I would say that um, why do we have to be um, why do we have to have books and canons assembled by imperfect people to live what is called holy. I think that you can't put all of a deity or a Christ figure in a singular canon in chapters in books and titles and chirons and headings and pages and commentary and personality profiles and verses and parables and stories everything that you put in a book because those all are puny in terms of describing the deities and Christ my question would be if we have to pray how come We don't usually get an audible answer back. Why pray when God already knows what we need? Just go supply it. Um, when it comes to the Bible, why did it, why do canons or religious texts like the Bible have to constantly repeat our, repeat themselves? Should newer things be said to cater to more of what people need? I like this quote from Eddie Griffin, the comedian, when he says, God's word is written in your essence. God is not a playwright. Born innately knowing that it's wrong to kill our mama. So we don't need a Bible to tell us that. That basically God didn't assemble the Bible, but God assembled itself 
finish and I like how that would make more sense. I would say that the definition of prayer has been warped. Uh, because it's more about humans wanting God to be at their beck and call. For humans to have God to do their uh, egocentric bidding. And I would say that let's say you're able to have communication with the divine. It would be more on a we're in this together type of way instead of me, myself, and I fulfillment. Let's say you can talk to the divine. I would never ask you for anything. Because I would be doing the work to to continue to live right when it comes to myself and other people. And because that being or beings allow certain things that to us human beings is heartbreaking. I would help myself to respond well to the suffering in the world. For the certain things that I've learned that happen in life that are awful. As long as in this life I've had trouble with the whole why bad things happen to people and the suffering why question. I come to the conclusion that no divine entity will ever completely squash those things. So I can't ask it to do something that's not even willing to do because I'll keep being frustrated by going to someone for something and they never get done. I ask them or tell them, never get done. So what I have to do is the suffering that I'm able to prevent, I do. The suffering that I can't prevent happens to others. I comfort them.
Don't get me wrong, the suffering that happens in life, such an unimaginable one, does cause me anger, a sense of, if I ruled the world, none of these things would happen, why would, you know, no human rights would have to my feet, and the people I make. I must admit that sometimes I surely do feel that feeling. Um, however, I um, I could say, well, there are things I will never understand. But what I am able to understand is, is that I can't live a life of being hateful and being so caught up in the why now questions that I um, And just wondering so much that I don't have any compassion, empathy, that none of that wouldn't be good. So what I focus on is just that I show the God in me to the world and not just to myself. What does that mean? I'm going to show the God in me. Often religion teaches you to go outside of what's inside. concepts that I see in religion, all the supernatural miraculous concepts are all within us. We're all angelic to someone. We're all a superhero to someone. We're all, we all do things that come off superhuman such as being kind to a person who's not used to kindness. That person subconsciously may view that as superhuman because they may be human as, well, I'm used to people being mean to me. So in that sense also, we're all a miracle to someone. And we're all justice to someone. We're all what's right, righteous to someone. 
And I'm not using that in a conservative the I'm not using that in a conservative theological way. I'm using that as we all do what's right to someone. We all do what's appropriate to someone. Uh, we're all We all experience the crucifixions of life to someone. Uh, we all experience messages that are like the gospel to someone. What is that? Crucifixion of life, I'm talking about the pain in life. And the messages that we proclaim are like gossip to one. We all say things that are wisdom to somebody else. Um, people that don't like us, in, our, in their minds, we're the devil to them. We're demons. And to people who really like us, we're like archangels to them. We bring... We're like the very messenger protective angels to them in their in their mind. We're like that to many people. And these are all religious concepts I'm using metaphorically. We're all heaven to someone. People that really appreciate us. We're all hell to someone. People that really can't stand us. And we're all purgatorial to somebody. We started one way. That was troubling. And you ascend to betterment and consciousness. They're all purgatory to someone. We're all a book that, we're all a living, breathing book to someone. For example, we're the Bible to someone. What does that mean? People go, you got to really expand that tone now. Don't freak us out. I would say what people read about us is very important to them. So sacred in this case means something that people never forget. Something that people think about quite often. Word like that to some people. We're all the church to someone. What does that mean? We're all a safe place, a place of refuge for someone. Again, I'm using religious terms in metaphorical fashion. 
when I make things metaphorical, there's no religiosity attached. Um, people were not tribalistic dominant we're not tribalistic denominations um, but we are flavorful in how we are to people we're, we're, we taste like vanilla to people we taste like chocolate to people we taste like orange sherbet to people but none of these tastes are competing with each other hmm I would say that we're like the Holy Spirit to people, meaning we're the comforters of people's lives. We're like deities and Christ figures to people. Whoa, 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 slow down, what do you mean? We're, we're like the mother birds who nurture people in the nest, feeding our offspring. And we're the mother birds willing to die for our children, not because they're innately awful but because they're their life mattering to us is what will make us surrender ours so they can keep going we're like prophets to people, meaning we're sent here to proclaim things that will inspire positive change and positive life betterment for many people. We're like houses of worship and tenants to people. What does that mean? There are life lessons that only we can teach certain people. And that's not tribalistic. It's everyone has diverse needs. Therefore, diverse understanding, diverse understanding, in this case, is needed. We're all a prayer to somebody. What does that mean? People may be, I may be what people have been requesting their whole life. I want to find a person who is labeled with autism and they're black and 
they understand what it's like to be childies. I'm not saying they're wishing anything bad on me. That's not what I'm saying. Is that, well, if I meet this person, then I can understand. I want to see the beauty of autism. I want to see the beauty of blackness and the beauty of how to overcome child abuse and to enjoy your blackness. They're not asking bad things and, and uh, a tough label to inflict me. They're saying, I want to see see a person who these things happen to them but they are victorious about these things happening to them. Or I may be a prayer to many people an answered one at best. So I like to use religious terms metaphorically. Even Christ-like I use metaphorically. It doesn't have anything to do with sin nature and y'all killed me because you're sinful. It's more of a consciousness, a Christ consciousness. It's more, it's, to me, it's a consciousness of empathizing with self and others, being endeared to self and others, especially empathizing and being dear to those who think differently than you, love differently than you, live differently than you. It has nothing to do with religiosity, nor piety for me, because no religious term that I use metaphorically has religiosity or piety to it. Never does. Never will. Or never has been. We're all social justice to someone. Meaning that we empower outcasts to be first. And the ones that are socially acceptable are the last. That's not elitism. That's how life is supposed to be. The reversal of the social order is actually a good thing. No human rights abuses occur when it comes to the social order reversal. It's just that that's how beautiful humanity is supposed to be. So I would say that I believe that human beings are capable of being ethical and moral without religion or belief in a deity because I personally have seen it. Uh, I would like to think that humans are inherently good and that very few people I guess are inherently evil. Because some people that are drawn to like mass material feels like 
maybe very few, a rare number of people are hairy evil, but even then that would make me question why let them be born. You know what I mean? I would just say my second humanism does not, however, assume that humans are either inherently good or, or inherently evil. Nor does, it, nor does my sacred humanist present humans as being spirit in nature. I would say that, yes, human beings are the caretakers and managers, but we're not elitists better than nature. I like to say that he, most humans are inherently good. It just feels that way. So I'm into human reason, psychoethics, and philosophical naturalism. Wow. Specifically, questioning religious dogma, supernaturalism, and superstition is based on morality and decision making. My questioning means that the conservative theologicalism approaching religious dogma, supernaturalism, superstition is all about um, we're all that in a bag of chips and everybody else is trash. And I go, no, 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 no. Now, I don't mind religious dogma, supernaturalism, superstition being about embracing those who think, live, and love diversely and differently as one does. But because it does not go, I can't accept those things. Um, rather, my sect my secular humanist life stance emphasizes the unique responsibility facing humanity and ethical consequences of human decisions. Okay. So now that I've finished the religion part, this will be the last um, Nope, I got plenty of time. Why, why I am pro-abortion, not just pro-choice, Valerie Tyrico, from volume 36, number, number 5, August to September 16th, secularhumanism.org, free inquiry. I believe that abortion carries a positive social good, and I think it's time people said so. Now, that I agree with. Not long ago, the Daily Cause published an article titled, I am pro-choice, not pro-abortion. Has anyone ever truly been pro-abortion when comments are asked? Uh, yes. Me, that would be me. And I dare say I agree. I am pro-abortion like I'm pro-knee replacement and pro-chemotherapy and pro-cataract surgery. Ooh, I feel that way. As the last protection against ill-conceived childbearing when all else fails, abortion is part of a set of tools that helps people to form the families of their choosing. Now that is true. I believe that abortion care is a positive social good. I say again, 
I expect a lot of other people secretly believe the same thing. I think it's time we said so. I think we secretly know the same thing. I think it's time we said so. That's true. No, I'm I'm also pro-choice. I am too. Choice is about who gets to make the decision. The question of whether and when we bring a new life to the world is, to my mind, one of the most important decisions that a person can make. It's too big a decision for us to make for each other, especially for perfect strangers. Um, that's true. But independent of who owns the decision, I'm pro on the procedure. Me too. I decided that it's time for once and for all to count it out on my ten fingers. I uh, agree. I'm pro-abortion because being able to delay and limit childbearing is fundamental to female empowerment and equality. A woman who lacks the means to manage her fertility lacks the means to manage her life. Any plans, dreams, aspirations, responsibilities, or commitments, no matter how important, have a great big contingency clause built in until or unless I get pregnant, which makes all bets are off. Think of any professional woman you know. She wouldn't be in that role if she had been able to time and limit her childbearing. Think of any girl you know who imagines becoming a professional woman. She won't get there unless she has effective, reliable means to manage her fertility. In generations past, nursing care was provided by nuns and teachers who were spinesters because avoiding sexual intimacy was the only way women could avoid unpredictable childbearing and still be freed up to serve their communities in other capacities. But if you think that absence should be our model for modern fertility management, consider the little graves that get found every so often under old nunneries and Catholic homes for unwed mothers. Two, I'm pro-abortion because well-timed pregnancies give children a healthier start in life. We now have ample evidence that babies do best when women are able to space their pregnancies and get prenatal and perception care and preconception care. The specific nutrients we ingest in the weeks before we get pregnant can have a lifelong effect on the well-being of our offspring. Rapid, repeat pregnancies increase the risk of low birth weight babies and other complications. Wanted babies are more likely to get their toes pierced. Be welcome into families that are financially and emotionally ready to receive them. To get preventive medical care during childhood and to receive the kinds of love and engagement that helps your young brains to develop. Three, I'm pro abortion because I take motherhood seriously. Most female bodies can incubate a baby thanks to antibiotics, cesareans, and anti hemorrhage drugs. Most of us are able to survive pushing a baby out into the world. But parenting is a lot of work, and doing it well takes 20 dedicated years of focus, attention, patience, persistence, social support, mental health, money, and a whole lot more. This is the biggest, most life-transforming thing most of us will ever do. The idea that women should simply go with it when they find themselves pregnant after a one-night stand or a rape or a broken condom completely trivializes motherhood. Four, I'm pro-abortion because intentional childbearing helps couples, families, and communities to get out of poverty. Decades of research in countries ranging from the United States to Bangladesh show that reproductive policy is economic policy. 
It's no coincidence that the American middle class rose along with the ability of couples to plan their families starting at the beginning of the last century. Having two or three kids instead of eight or ten was critical to prospering in the modern industrial economy. Early on-site childbearing meets economic opportunity contributes to multi-generational poverty. Today in the United States, on-site pregnancy and childbearing is declining for everyone, but the poorest families and communities contributing to what some call a growing quote-unquote caste system in America. Strong, determined girls and women sometimes beat the odds, but their stories inspire us precisely because they are the exceptions to the rule. Justice dictates that the full range of fertility management tools, including the best state-of-the-art contraceptive technologies, and when that fails, abortion care be equally available to all, not just a privileged few. Five, I'm pro-abortion because reproduction is a highly imperfect process. Genetic recombination is a complicated progression of flaws and false starts at every step along the way. To compensate every known species, including humans, reproduction operates as a big funnel. Many more eggs and sperm are produced than we'll ever, than we'll ever meet. More combined into embryos than we'll ever implant. More implants that will grow into babies and more babies are born that will grow up to have babies of their own. The systematic calling makes God or nature or logic the world's biggest abortion provider nature's way of producing healthy kids essentially requires every woman to have an abortion mill built into her own body in humans an estimated 60 to 80 percent of fertilized eggs self-destruct for becoming babies which is why the people who kill the most embryos are those like the duggars who try to maximize their number of pregnancies but the weeding out process is also highly imperfect. Sometimes perfectly viable combinations boot themselves out. Sometimes horrible defects slip through. A woman's body may be less fertile when she is stressed or ill or malnourished, but as pictures of skeletal moms and babies show, some women conceive even under devastating circumstances like another medical procedure. Therapeutic contraception and abortion complement natural processes designed to help her survive and thrive. Six, I'm pro-abortion because I think morality is about the well-being of sentient beings. I believe that morality is about the lived experience of sentient beings, sentient beings, beings who can feel pleasure and pain. Preference and intention and who at their most complex can live in relation to other beings, love and be loved, divide their own existence. What are they capable of wanting? What are they capable of feeling? These are the questions my husband and I explored with our children when they were figuring out their responsibility to their chickens and guinea pigs. It was a lesson that turned expensive when the girls stopped drinking milk from cows that they didn't see the light of day or eat grass. But it's not one I regret doing to others as they want you to do unto them. It's called the platinum rule. In, the, in this moral universe, real people count more than potential people, hypothetical people, or corporate people. Seven, I'm pro-abortion because contraceptives are imperfect and people are too. The pill is 1960s technology, now half a century old. For decades, women were told that the pill was 99% effective and they blamed themselves when they got pregnant anyway, but that 99% is a quote-unquote perfect use statistic. In the real world where most of us live, people aren't perfect. In the real world, one in 11 women relying on the pill gets pregnant each year. For a couple relying on condoms, that's one in six young and poor women those whose lives are least predictable and most vulnerable to being thrown off course are also those who have the most difficulty taking pills consistently. 
health technology most fails those who need it most, which makes abortion access a matter not only of compassion but of justice. Instead of the art, IUDs and implants radically change this equation largely because they take human error out of the picture for years on end until a woman wants a baby. And despite the deliberative misinformation being spread by opponents, these methods are genuine contraceptives, not abortive fashion, or not abortive fashion. Depending on the method chosen, they disable sperm or block their path or prevent an egg from being released. Once settled into place, an IUD or implant drops the annual pregnancy rate below 1 in 500. And guess what? Teen pregnancies and abortions plummet, which makes me happy because even though I'm pro-abortion, I'd love the need for abortion to go away. Why mitigate harm when you can prevent it? Hey, I'm pro-abortion because I believe in mercy, grace, and compassion, the power of fresh starts. Many years ago, my friendship was driving his family vacation when his kids started squabbling. His wife, Marla, undid her seatbelt to help them, and as Chip looked over at her, their top-heavy minivan veered onto the shoulder and then rolled, and Marla died. Sometimes people make mistakes of accidents that they pay for the rest of their lives, but I myself have swerved onto the shoulder and swiftly swerved back. The price we pay for a lapse in attention and judgment or accident at any time. The price we pay for a lapse in attention or judgment or an accident of any kind isn't proportional to the error we made. For months, I hadn't had unprotected sex from the time or situation or partnership wasn't quite right for bringing a new life into the world. Most of the time, we get lucky, sometimes we don't. And in those situations, you rely on the mercy, compassion, generosity of others in this regard. An unsought pregnancy is like any other accident. I can walk today only because surgeons reassembled my lower leg after it was crushed between the front of a car and a bicycle frame when I was a teen. And I can walk today and run and jump because another team of surgeons reassembled my knee joint after I fell off a ladder. And I can walk today and bicycle with my family because a third team of surgeons repaired my other knee after I pulled a bearing brush mower after myself cutting clear through bone cutting clear through bone these three accidents all my own doing and three knee surgeries some women have three abortions nine i'm pro-abortion because the future is always in motion we have the power and responsibility to shape it well as a college student i read a ray bradbury story about a man who travels back into prehistory on a time safari the tourists have been coached about the importance of not disturbing anything lest they change the flow of history. When they return to the present, they realize that the outcome of an election has changed and they discover that the protagonist who had gone off the trail has a crushed butterfly on the bottom of his shoe. And they make as in Bradbury's story, the future is always in motion. Every little thing we do has consequences we have no way to predict. Any small change means that a different child comes to the world, which nights your mother had headaches which nights your mother had headaches the sexual position of your parents when they conceived you whether or not your mother rolled over in bed afterwards if any of these if any of these things had been different someone else would be here instead of you everyday people make small choices and potential people wink into and out of existence they move and our movements ripple through time in ways that are incomprehensible and we can never know what the alternate futures might have been. 
but some things we can know or predict at least at the level of probability and i think this knowledge provides a basis of guiding wise reproductive decisions my friend judy says that parenting begins before conception i agree how when we choose to carry forward a new life and staff the odds of favor of our children against them to me as a sacred trust And I'm pro-abortion because I love my daughter. First of all, I my own abortion when Dr. George Tiller was murdered. I couldn't bear the thought of abortion providers standing in the crosshairs alone. My abortion baby was about my daughter, Bryn, who exists only because of kind doctors such as George Tiller gave me and my husband the gift of a fresh start when we learned that our wanted pregnancy is unhealthy. Bryn literally embodies the effort changing for the future because she could not exist in an alternate universe in which I would have carried the first part, that first part to return. She was conceived when I was with, while I would still have been pregnant with a child who had begun to imagine what the never came to be. Oh, she was conceived when I would still have been pregnant with a child we had begun to imagine but who never came to be. My husband and I felt very clear that caring for that pregnancy would have been a violation of our values and neither of us ever second-guessed our decision. Even so, I grieved even when I got pregnant again a few months later. I remember feeling petulant and thinking, I want that baby, not this one. And then Brent came out to the world. I looked at the rise, fell in love, and never looked back. All around us, living, breathing, and loving are the chosen children and mothers who waited, who ended in ill-time, unhealthy pregnancy, and later chose to carry forward a new life. I was only going to have two children, my friend Jane is her daughter's grace screeching joyfully across my lawn. Jen followed them with her eyes. My abortions let me have these two when the time was right with someone I love. Those who see abortion as an unmitigated evil often talk about the millions of missing people who are not born into this world because the pregnant woman decided not now. But they never talk about the millions of children and adults who are here today only because their mothers had abortions. Real people exist in this version of the future. People are living out their lives all around us, loving, laughing, suffering, struggling, dancing, dreaming, and having babies of their own. And those who oppose abortion, I meant the missing people. I heard echoes my own passionate thought. I want that person, not this one. I wish that they could simply experience what I did, that they could look into the beautiful eyes of the people in front of them and fall in love. These are all the reasons why I am pro-abortion and not just pro-choice. This is coming from Antonio Raymire. Okay. Real quick, I want to say that we're all having to someone, meaning to treat them right. We're all held to someone because people come up with reasons not to like us. I just wanted to say that I want to make sure I understand that. Okay, what is ethical porn? How could it enhance your sex life function July 7th, 2021? I love porn. People are often surprised. I love porn too, I do. People are often surprised when I say that, and as an outspoken, unapologetic feminist, surely pornography would be against everything I stand for. Well, no, well, not exactly. It's true that the mainstream porn industry has a lot to answer for. Too often, large quote-unquote tube sites prop from stolen content or non-consensual content including revenge porn and child abuse material but there's an alternative if you've never explored ethical porn 
you're missing out on something that can be a wonderful addition to your sex life. Today, I'm spotlighting Vanessa Plus, a porn streaming platform that calls itself, quote unquote, the Netflix of porn offers a pay what you pay model consisting costing from as little as $1 per month. The higher prices offer special perks such as free sex toys and gift cards to the Blessed Boutique, the Boutique, but the low entry point means you can enjoy more ethical adult content even if you're on a budget. But what is ethical for it? As with many of the things we consume from food and media, people are becoming more and more concerned about the ethics driving their porn. Untangling exactly what constitutes ethical porn can be a minefield, especially given that the porn industry is still often defending its right to exist at all. There are four things that I believe go into making porn ethical consent. This might seem like a bare minimum standard, but it's missing from a shocking amount of mainstream porn. 100% of Valesca's content features consenting adults having consensual sex that has been consensually filmed. Performers have the opportunity to negotiate with their partner before filming starts, exploring their likes and dislikes. If a scene involves role play, performers will be briefed on their role in plenty of time to ensure they're comfortable with it. And if, like me, you're squicked by all the pseudo incesting stepsister content that pops up, on mainstream sites, you'll be pleased to know Balesa doesn't do any of that. Chemistry and connection. When I watch porn, I often gravitate towards amateur content because it feels so much more authentic. Whatever the specific acts, whatever the specific acts that they're engaging in, ultimately I want to watch people who truly like or even love each other, having hot sex that they're genuinely enjoying. Many mainstream porn studios don't give performers much choice who they work with. Blessed pairs performers who truly have chemistry actually want to have sex with each other because real connection and attraction makes for much hotter content and a much better working environment for the performers. Women as subjects, not objects. One of the things that will turn me off the fastest in any point in the scene, women being objectified. This is apparent in everything from the naming of scenes to the ways in which female pleasure is explored or often ignored. Ethical porn puts the pleasure of all participants front and center. In ethical porn, the women being depicted are full human beings with their own desires and erotic agency. In other words, subjects of pleasure, not objects to be acted upon. Meaning, subjects of pleasure, not objects of pleasure. Blessed porn is directed and produced by women, headed up by the inimitable Jackie a safe and respectful working environment. Making pornography is work and performers deserve a safe working environment just as much as employees in any other industry. This could be as simple as prior, uh, this could be as simple as prioritizing their comfort on sex, such as making sure they're well fed and hydrated. Sexual safety is important too, whether they're that's ensuring plenty of lube is used to carrying out rigorous STI analysis of COVID-19 testing. And of course, performers must retain the right to say no or to call cut on a scene for any reason. This goes back to consent. Performers should also be fairly compensated for the work they do. Making porn can be huge fun, but it can also be physically and emotionally taxing at times. Performers are workers and deserve to be paid a fair rate, or ATV. Uh, how ethical parts enhance your life. Despite what naysayers might say about it, 
I believe that porn could be an extremely healthy and positive addition to your sex life, whether you're single or partnered. When you make a point of consuming ethical porn, you can feel good about your feeling habits. Partners could be casual, committed to. Hmm. Here are three ways ethical porn can enhance your sex life. Get new ideas. I recently experimented with a new kink activity with my partner. Why? Because I saw the specific act in a porn clip, thought it looked hot, and asked him if he'd be willing to try it with me. Good porn has the potential to introduce you to new kinks, activities, and ways of having sex that you might never have thought of before. While you might not want to try everything you see, some things are sure to resonate. One of the things I love most about human sexuality is, is its a finite variety. Every single day, people are having sex in endlessly creative ways, many of which I'm sure I've never even thought of, and you probably haven't either. Ethical porn gives you a consensual window into other people's bedrooms and all the other sexual settings allows you to draw inspiration from what you see. Uh, enjoy things that you can't do in real life. Perhaps there are things you fantasize about but can't or don't want to do. Why? For example, you might be a bisexual person in a monogamous relationship with a different gender partner. Watching porn can allow you to express your attraction to same gendered people without changing relationships you have with your partner. Or maybe you have a particular fetish that your partner doesn't share. In your relationship agreement, don't allow for getting that itch scratched with others. Porn featuring a kink is another ethical and safe sexual outlet. It's also valid to enjoy things and fantasy that you don't want to do in real life. Let's say you fantasize about gangbangs but consider the idea too risky to carry out in reality. Ethical porn is a wonderful way to enjoy your fantasies in a safe way that doesn't carry any of the real world risks that might come with realizing you should desire. For many people, including me, arousal begets arousal. In other words, the more you masturbate, have sex, you consume erotic media, the more you'll want to. The anti-porn crowd would say this is a bad thing, but I believe it could be just the opposite. After all, sexual pleasure is healthy, orgasms are good for us. Why not seek a little more of both in your life? So if you're looking to get in the mood more often or more easily, pulling up your favorite steamy scene can help make that happen. Whether you watch, watch alone with a partner, the right porn can help to figure out your libido when it needs a little extra help. Want to explore ethical porn? If so, grab yourself a Blessed Plus, Blessed Plus subscription. You get access to top content for 50 plus premium porn channels, limited 4,000 streaming, access to interactive sex education content, and unlimited access to over 600 erotic stores. You also enjoy 24 7 support, discreet, and secure billing, and an ad free viewing experience. Best of all, you can get off to some of the hottest content you find anywhere and know that you're supporting a company doing good in this industry. Plus, Blessa Plus. FYI, for your information, this post was sponsored by the good folks at Blessa. All views is ever amount. I just want to say that every word in this article I strongly agree with and I strongly apply in my personal sex life. And I strongly, and I every word in this article. I will absolutely apply when it comes to my time to being a global ethical porn icon. 
And I look forward to being featured in Balassa and Balassa Plus. And so what I want to say is, is that I practice universal Christ consciousness, meaning that I see the, the empathy and endearment in people who are non-religious as well as the religious. I see the good in people think and live differently than I, not just the ones who think live and love the same as I. Again, I see the good in people who think live love differently than I, as well as those who think live and love the same as I. So that's what I love about my life. And I do not see I don't see any deity I don't see any deity as um, gendered. I don't see any deity as gendered. I say it. I say spirit. And um, I'm unconventional. I'm non-traditional in every which way. And I just want to say that uh, I just want to say in closing that I'm a nonconformist. I'm a rationalist. I'm a humanist. I'm secular. Um, Maybe that maybe the afterlife can be forms of actual places. It could be states of consciousness. It could be both, one or the other, I don't know. And I would say that I am a Unitarian Universalist, a Buddhist. I'm pro-evolution, I'm pro-logic, I'm pro-science. Um, I interpret Jesus from completely secularized perceptions only in ways that are not warring against non-Christians. Um, and I am completely hol holistic. I am whole and one with myself, people, animals, nature, architect. Uh, architecture, life, planet Earth, the universe. And that's how I see myself again. I'm holding myself, people, animals, nature, insects, architecture, life, the planet Earth, and the universe. And um, I say this in closing. Um, 
And this last, last thing I'll say in closing. We're versions of each other, expressions of each other. And I do not think that applies to people who never want to change for the better. And with that, I am complete. Wait, there's a little more. I am kinky, super freaky, have high sex drive, healthy hypersexual. I have no sex addiction, I have no porn addiction, I have no masturbation addiction. I'm exhibitionist. That feels sexual, that feels foul. And I am healthily buck wild.